We see lots of companies hiring diversity directors and senior diversity directors. Are they going to be given the space to produce in the non-traditional sense and make their organizations diverse? A highly respected marketing and communications consultant, Sandra King has led teams in sales, marketing, communications, and brand development. Sandra has worked with organizations such as Time Magazine, the Boston Red Sox, UMass Boston, and WGBH, one of America's most storied PBS outlets. In addition to running her own marketing consulting firm, SD King Associates, Sandra is a lecturer at Boston University for both the School of Business and the School of Hospitality Administration. She also guides the mentoring program for health sector MBA students at Boston University. In addition to her day jobs, she's a principal with CREST, Commercial Real Estate Success Training Internship Program that places underrepresented minority college students and women in the commercial real estate industry. She's on the board at Daily Table, a nonprofit community grocer dedicated to providing fresh and nutritious food to communities most in need and at affordable prices. Sandra has also served on boards for WGBH, New England Baptist Hospital, the Museum of African American History, and REACH, an organization dedicated to eliminating domestic violence, and she still supports the organization and its work. I'm very pleased to welcome Sandra King to the Look Left at Marketing podcast. Well, first, thank you, Davida, for this wonderful invitation. It's been a pleasure to stay connected with you over all these years. We have a lot to talk about today. Welcome. So great to have you and talk with you today on so many things from academia uh, to corporate to nonprofits. But before I do, it's my understanding you have a connection to last night's announcement that Joe Biden, Democratic presidential candidate, announced Kamala Harris as his vice presidential running mate. So please let me know what connection you have. To say I have a connection to the announcement is a bit of an exaggeration. However, there are some commonalities and some loose connection. I have a daughter, Courtney King Tunis, who is the head of activation for the organization Supermajority. And she's also the co-founder of Pantsuit Nation. Pantsuit Nation, as you may know, is a 3.8 million um, member online co uh, community focused on public policy and voting rights, etc. Courtney had the pleasure of meeting Kamala Harris in September when Supermajority was doing a bus tour across the country, and they invited Kamala Harris to be one of their speakers. Courtney is um, the offspring of a Jamaican. I was, I was raised in Jamaica. I came to the U.S. when I was 18 years old to go to college. So Courtney was able to have that wonderful conversation with Kamala, and they have a great picture that they took together. And here we are. She's now the vice presidential candidate. So it feels very special. It is special in many ways. Uh, knowing your background, Sandra, from corporate and academia and nonprofit, I did have one question also ahead of time. Are you one of those people who doesn't need a lot of sleep? Because I just don't know how you get it all done and fit it all in. Well, it's not so much that I don't need a lot of sleep, but I do sleep very soundly when I put my head on the pillow. So I typically will go to bed somewhere between 10.30 and 11.30. 
and I'm up every morning right around 6.15. I try to get my workout in at 7, and then my day is ready once my workout is done. Uh, so it's not that I get many, many hours of sleep, but I do get very sound sleep. That's good. I do not think sleep is overrated. Uh, I do believe that I play better tennis when I sleep more or better. So, um, But you do seem to get a lot done and, and fit a lot in your life, and it's wonderful. And, and one of them is marketing. And I'd love to know, did you always know you wanted to get into marketing? That's a really interesting question because I reflect on that ever so often. It was accidental and it was accidental in a positive way. I left Jamaica to go to college. I came to Elmira College in Elmira, New York. I was an English major um, at Elmira College. And in my sophomore year, I took an elective marketing course. And the professor who taught the course, Dr. Rickard, had just retired from the Sloan School of Business at MIT. And I think this was kind of his retirement stint. And I took this course. He immediately took a liking to me as a student. And um, one of my best friends, a male, he was in the class as well. And he created a very competitive environment between the two of us. And at the end of the semester, he invited me to be his teaching assistant. And he also said at that time, have you considered a career in marketing? Uh, Not that English isn't important, but how about marketing? And that's how it started. And I've been with it ever since. It takes a support like that to really get you going. But, you know, you had to have the talent as well. And what characteristics did you have that he saw in you that led him to say that to you and to encourage you to go into the field? As I'm thinking about it, I think it I was always comfortable speaking my mind. I've always been comfortable with new ideas and I've also also been comfortable with building on other people's ideas. And those are the traits I think that he he identified. I'm super competitive uh, as well. So being able to assess where you are and how you position yourselves, uh, I think was a natural inclination for me. And he perhaps spotted that and decided that this was something, these were the um, attributes of a successful marketing professional and therefore encouraged me to think about it as a career option. For people who are listening and want to maybe get into marketing or be better at it, what advice would you give others? It starts with listening. I know a lot of people say that, but it really it, it really does sincerely start with listening. For example, if I am pitching an account and I go in for the first meeting with a prospective client, Part of my discipline and the discipline of the people that I try to instill with the people I work with is let's do less talking and more listening. Let's ask a question and step back so that we can hear what are the issues that this organization, this individual, this group, it might be grappling with. How are they framing it? Can you, are there some keywords, some trigger expressions that you should be capturing? And I always tell people, 
in those situations, I'm going to be taking notes furiously. So if I'm not looking at you, doesn't mean I'm not hearing you. I want to be sure that I'm able to capture what I think you are um, conveying to me. So it starts with listening. And then when you step away from that, doing the assessment of what you've heard and try to formulate what then is the problem and how do we start thinking about not just framing the problem, but identifying potential solutions. And I use the word potential very deliberately because we won't come up on the first solution the first time we put it on paper. It's an iterative process. And as long as we're comfortable with that, then I think we can have success. Very good advice. And along those lines, I don't know if you can put it to two, three, five favorite books or resources for people who might be interested in getting into the field and and what would be uh, either good authors or resources you might uh, advise people to, to get? I'm so glad you asked that question because I have two sets of uh, books. One is what I refer to as the classics. There are two books that I, in marketing, that have stood the test of time for me, and I introduced them to many people over the years. The first one is Positioning the Battle for Your Mind by Al Reese and Jack Trout. And this was written several decades ago now. It came out in the early 80s. Um, I had the wonderful opportunity to hire Jack Trout, actually, to come to the organization that I was heading up marketing strategy at at that time to learn what I what I used to refer to as learn from his feet because he was is he smart fast paced kind of pithy it was like being in a master class of all things marketing and that book is still a bible today it has been reprinted many, many times. Um, I think both of their, both Al and Jack's children are running the company now. I haven't really kept up with the company itself, but I certainly have my original book. And it really is about looking at competition, timing, naming, niche identification, implementation, and, um, and, and analysis of the results. The second classic is Marketing Myopia by Ted Levitt. And you probably had that in graduate school. I don't know if you did or not. Again, another classic. It really talks about our vision or our lack of vision in marketing and how we should open our lenses wider so that we're not myopic, we're not short-sighted. So those are the two classics. Then on the... um, Bestseller list today-ish, like most recent books, um, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. While it's really not about marketing per se, it really is about how people think. And how people think then influences how people act. And how people act influences the decisions that they make that will involve their products and services. Another one is um, Contagious, Why Things Catch On. That's newer. It really is how, are, how, in, how is information going viral and why? What are the influencing factors to make that happen? And last but not least is Michael Lewis's The Undoing Project. 
And that's about understanding the human psyche. And I teach uh, consumer behavior. And that is exactly what Michael Lewis talks about in this book. Is It's kind of an intellectually rigorous an entertaining way to look at how consumers act and think. I loved how you went from, you know, there's some good old standbys to, as you said, newer ones, but some of the same principles apply even now from then. I mean, I suppose how differently can people be? Although there are a lot of factors like social media that may or may not have been in play when some of the older versions were written. Oh, they absolutely weren't in play. Right. So there were some, you know, issues that the, those authors may change now mm-hmm. or ad- adapt. So it's good to have basic principles and then be able to build on them and adapt to them, given some of the forces out there that are, you know, you just have to play along with. And, you know, there's, I don't think there's marketing or PR that cannot happen without social media right now, although there's there's a lot going on. But Right. But I think what both Jack and um, Ted Levitz are saying in their foundation is it's not about the delivery Mm -hmm. tool. It really is about the foundation understanding. Mm -hmm. And um, their delivery tool back then was radio Mm -hmm. and TV. And that has changed dramatically, as we know. But the principles of how you get to that marketplace are basically the same. That was a very interesting, and I'm sure the purchases of those books will, will spike right now. <laughs> well, you know, it's amazing that that positioning is still, uh, and Levitt, both, are still on the top, I think they're on the top 20 or the top 15 list mm. of marketing books after all these years. I'm going to pivot a little bit because there are some very hot topics on now, and I know you have some wonderful opinions about them and based on experience and where you are now at Boston University, but COVID, it's hard not to put that into a conversation. Uh, and that's front and center as students are embarking on a new school year. And, and every day we hear about a new school that's saying, nope, we're not going to go. We're not going to be on campus. We're going to be um, going to be remote. And at one point we had shared a, an article, it was in July, a BBJ article on six mass colleges that are most likely to perish. We talked about that a little bit. It was by a, a research professor at NYU. So one thing I wanted to talk about was how well or not is higher ed handling this pandemic? Uh, Are they communicating properly enough? What are your thoughts there? First, let's put it in perspective. None of us have walked this road before. And therefore, it's one of those situations where you're flying the plane and you're building it at the same time. I commend the leadership of many of the institutions who are working very, very hard to figure out what's the best approach. What is critically important and what some have done very, very well and some are grappling with is how do you communicate information that's clear, that's accurate, and that's timely. And in particular, right now, if you think about it, today is August 12th. Many of the campuses will be scheduled to be open next week. How much information does that student body, the parents, the faculty, the the staff have to be able to feel a sense of comfort around the planning for a reopening? 
In some institutions, they have done a very, very good job of it. In others, they're still trying to figure it out. The, and it's not about large or small. It really is about being able to be decisive about your decisions, uh, supporting them with facts and information, answering questions, and then backing away. I get uh, communications from many academic institutions, partly because I'm curious. And I, uh, as an academic and as someone who headed up marketing for three academic institutions or four, I guess, four academic institutions, I'm overwhelmed with the information that I read. I can't imagine someone sending their kid off for the first time to an academic experience. I happened to see a young man yesterday at that coffee shop that we just talked about earlier who he, he's going off to be a freshman at a, a New England college. And he was so excited and yet at the same time so concerned. Uh, it, was, it was palpable. So communication, constant communication, the, the um, assuring the audience that when decisions need to be made, if they're going to be drastic decisions that have to be made, for example, if you have to shut down, if you have to reorient things, will they feel comfortable being able to communicate that quickly and credibly? I agree. One of the challenges is there are so many customers that a university has. You've got the students, you've got the parents, you've got the faculty and staff. And, and to make a decision for all of those people, you know, I would say for the most part, I'm just assuming knowing my kids, uh, one of whom just graduated, one of whom is going to be a sophomore at a, at a college, and he's so dying to go back, and he is. And this university is, is, has been planning for a while, seeing what was going to happen and anticipating, almost anticipating the worst case scenario so that they're ready for it. And you know what? It's probably the worst case scenario right now. So, so I think one of the things was anticipating that and not, and, and knowing how to plan. I think if, if everybody had their druthers, they'd say, all right, everybody home and let's just figure this out. And, but it's, there's, a, there's also financial reasons. There's so many reasons. So I, I do not cr- criticize. The variables are enormous. Right, right. If we, if we just take um, faculty as an example, we have tenured faculty, we have research faculty, we have adjunct faculty, we have lecturers, senior lecturers. Each category has a different requirement. We have age, we have uh, um, experiential levels, we have interactive classes versus lecture classes. There's so many variables. And the people who are making these decisions on behalf of the institution as a whole has to manage on A, understand those variables, and then manage around each one of them. As a professor of our next generation of the workforce, you were teaching at the beginning in March, of course, before that. But what did you observe as, as those students' reaction to the pandemic, and then how did it change as time went on? Well, I think at first, all of us, not just the students, said to ourselves, this can't be happening. There was a a bit of uncertainty around how severe is this. Once the schools shut down and we started to prepare for online, in the case of Boston University, it happened when the students were on spring break. 
So when they came back, and, and, and I lose, use the term came back loosely because they were asked to stay in place wherever they are. And when they joined the academic community virtually, they were coming into a situation that nobody had ever experienced. It's not like this, is a, this was an institution that had a large online presence in terms of program delivery. So on the staff and faculty side, we had to, in four days, formulate a delivery system to be able to complete the semester. On the student side, we had to make assumptions about what kind of resources did they have on hand to be able to take advantage of this online delivery platform. Some students have the resources in terms of internet access and computers and cell phones, and other students just didn't. They lived in, they were home in um, multi-generational households where there were perhaps limited resources, or they, as in case of a couple of students, they had left their computers on campus and they couldn't come back to get them. So there were lots of variables that we had to address. At that front end, the skepticism was high by the students about how serious is this and how long will this last. I think it was a bit of um, wishful thinking that they'd be able to come back to campus and be with their friends, particularly the seniors. And for others, it was, this can't be happening. I'm about to interview for jobs. Who's going to hire me? So it was as the semester went on and we got closer to um, the close of the semester, you could see the reality beginning to settle in with some of the students, particularly those who were in communities where there were high incidences of COVID. Um, and those who had maybe a grandparent who had it or they heard of somebody who had lost a friend, um, you know, a, a mostly an older friend. So the reality started to set in. And last but not least, there was extreme loneliness because these students were at home with their parents in their bedrooms or they were um, trapped um, from spring vacation in Florida, there was extreme loneliness. And it, it, came, it showed up on the Zoom screen. <laughs> you know, we talked about it. Every class that I taught, I would spend the first five to seven minutes checking the temperature, asking the students, how are they feeling? Uh, and they, to a person, would, text me afterwards to tell me how much that meant to them, to know that, that what they were hearing from their classmates was not isolated to them alone, but that it was a shared experience. That's a great explanation. You had said something that I'd love to segue into, and that is, I'm going to get a job. What do I do? So the current office environment is going to impact work for younger professionals for sure, at least in the short term. So what do you, how are organizations handling this and how are people handling it from the interviewee side? How is this dynamic working? Well, for the students who had secured jobs and are fortunate to have been able to 
keep those jobs because some have some jobs have gone away you know some offers have gone away but the ones who have been able to keep those jobs have um in general the the students i know have adapted to virtual communication they're establishing a relationship with their office with their organizations on on the web on you know virtually uh, some are finding that they're being invited into the office space, but in a very socially distanced, responsible way. And um, very few are being welcomed in with lunches or anything that's celebratory. It's more about let's see each other face to face at a distance if we can let's establish what the parameters are going to be and then let's choose the right work process that will be effective for all of us and um, that's going to be a continuous process for some organizations you know an organization of maybe three to five people and they have the square footage to be able to socially distance safely that might happen for others with very large um, employee base. Virtual working environments are here for a long, long time. You think so? Yes. I, well, many companies are asking people to start framing not coming back till uh, right. spring of 2021. You've seen some of those reports. I've seen companies backtrack saying, oh, we will be going back in a month and then they get a lot of heat for that. And then I see a week later, oh, nope, we're going to be, <laughs> then they're going to play the virtual card. So, Right. And and I know a lot of people, a lot of organizations are doing what I call rotating schedule. You come in three days, you work from home two, and the other group of people come in two days and work three, et cetera. It takes a lot of management. It does. And, you know, for younger professionals going in, you like that face-to-face, -face, you, you develop mentorships, you develop relationships with people sometimes the work environment is is someone's social life oh, oh absolutely yes and that's just gonna have that's just changing dramatically and it's not an easy question to ask or answer but it's how to adapt and how companies can help their employees adapt through slack channels or virtual get-togethers or something that helps create a bond among the employees and keeps the communication going similarly as they would if people were on premises. And also perhaps adjusting the expectations around what those relationships will deliver in the mm -hmm. short term. You know, if you look back at the first job you had out of graduate school, if I look back at the first job I had, I'm still in touch with those people. Mm. I know all about their families. They know all about mine because we spent physical time together. We traveled together. We did research projects together. We walked down the hall and had a cup of coffee together. That dynamic is not here and it won't be for a while. So trying to figure out what you can replicate in the virtual world to give that same sense of community is one of the challenges that these organizations are facing right. right now. One thing just popped in my mind that knowing my own kids and how much they have their noses in their iPhones, it, it's just a reality. They're always, that's how they communicate. Maybe it's not so bad. Maybe they're used to this remote online, you know, I've seen kids talk to each other 
but and sitting next to each other, talking to each other on their iPhones. Oh, sure, right. sure. So maybe I was jumping to to a conclusion that wasn't there and saying, you know, oh, poor kids, they won't have that face to face. Maybe they don't want it. Maybe they don't think it's that important like we did when we were out of school and we wanted that face to face connection for networking and all. Well, I don't know that I totally agree with that. I think you're partially right. It, but human beings need physical contact. Part of what helps us uh, grow is when we observe. And, and we observe by being in each other's presence. And that's missing. Now, what is what can we do to replicate that kind of experience? I don't know that an iPhone or an iPad will do that. It will p- partially deliver some of that interaction for sure, but certainly not some of the the um, spiritual awareness that we need from just being with each other. I'm glad that that gives me hope. Love to to, to move a little bit more into your corporate life and um, talk about your experience. Talk talk a little bit about your your consulting firm and what you do and the kinds of projects you work on. Well, my consulting firm is is a small one. Um, it's a, it's a very small shop and it's called An Associates for a reason because I pull in uh, the talents of other professionals when we need it um, to supplement the work that we're doing. Most importantly, in terms of my corporate experience, I think. It is um, it is multifaceted. You know, I started out in consulting. In, uh, there was a very large uh, international consulting firm in Cambridge, Arthur D. Little, uh, where I started fresh out of graduate school. I had the opportunity to travel the world to work on some really high visibility, high impact projects, and um, then made the transition to working for organizations where what I'd like to say is that we produced widgets, we made things, we found markets, we uh, distributed the products and services, we evaluated the success of the products and services. So I went from being an advisor to a a doer and then uh, made a huge academic career shift when I went to head up marketing for academic institutions. And that is probably, that was the longest stretch of my um, career uh, is that I introduced to an environment that was not familiar with or comfortable with the word marketing, the term marketing, that's academic institutions had always had the um, perspective that build it and they will come. Well, the competition changed. The value expectations changed. The, the, the population changed, as in the market. So that uh, when I was uh, hired to be the vice president of marketing at Babson College, I was the first person in the country that an academic institution dared call a marketing professional. Yeah, they call them communications, they call them 
um, university relations. There were lots of pseudonyms for the what was essentially marketing. And you remember Bill Glavin. Bill Glavin said, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, we are calling it a duck. And hence he said, this is a marketing job and you're going to have a title that says marketing. So that's how that, uh, you know, started. And then when I left the academic world, I started consulting to academic institutions as well as emerging businesses. And I did a fair amount of work in healthcare and um, continue to do now work around um, getting students and women, minority students and women placed in environments where they're few and far between in a professional rank. Hence the CREST program that I know that you have heard about. It's the commercial real estate success training program that I run with my two colleagues, Milton Benjamin and Dakota Jones. And our goal there is to get the commercial real estate industry a lot more integrated and a lot more diverse than it has ever been. Great segue into your nonprofit work as well. Talk a little bit about Crest and then Reach. Well, Crest is not nonprofit. Crest is a a for-profit organization which works with commercial real estate establishment to minimize or refute their perspective that we can't find candidates. So we started with an internship program where we are introducing some of the best and brightest minority students and women to the largest, most successful real estate companies in the greater Boston area in Massachusetts. It's It's a regional program. And we work with academic partners. So we have a relationship with several institutions where collectively we are working to find the students who will become the resource for these organizations that have traditionally gone their, you know, their typical way. You know, it's a friend, it's my neighbor's child, it's, it's the offspring of someone who works in the marketing department or who works in finance. No, what we're saying is you need to look differently at what your sources of resources are for students and for prospective employers, hence the internship program. Do you think that programs like this is influencing how companies are hiring from a diversity standpoint from, no? It's beginning. There's a confluence, as you know, societally of a bunch of things happening right now. Um, Certainly there is social unrest there is a feeling of um, most people have been talking the talk but not walking the walk. And therefore, we are at a point where we feel that society needs to do the latter, which is walk the walk and walk the talk, both. Uh, so it's not yet blossoming but it's on the radar. And that is one of the reasons why this election is so exciting too, is guess what? It's not going to get off the radar. 
it has to stay on the radar. And organizations like ours that puts together Crest, and there, there are multiple organizations that do diversity and inclusion support. Um, organizations like ours have to not be, um, you know, project of the week. It really has to become part of the DNA of the organizations. You know, we see lots of companies hiring diversity directors and senior diversity directors. And are they're not revenue producing in the traditional sense? Are they going to be given the space to produce in the non-traditional sense and make their organizations diverse? That's a great question. And I think what went on is, you know, it started with Black Lives Matter and it's been going on for a long time, but maybe it was because of the pandemic, people were just fed up or just needed something else to to look to and the George Floyd situation really brought it to a head and it really hasn't left us. It's versus other times when, like you said, it subsides and then they go back to the usual. So it's here to stay. And now companies have to say, Oh, we really have to deal with this now. So step one, step two, step three, it's Mm -hmm. here to stay. Now what? It reminds me of my early days in my career when, you know, the issue was bringing more women into the corporate world. And um, they, there were efforts, there were talks, they had meetings, they had conferences, and, and then it kind of slipped away. We were all brought in at the entry level spots, or maybe the next level up. But did anybody see women being corporate leaders in the way that they saw men being corporate leaders? Heck no. And it's a similar kind of feeling right now around all of this diversity awareness. But we hope that we've learned from our past mistakes that this can't be one and done kind of activity. We had shared an article a while ago now, it seems like forever ago, the Vanity Fair article on people are fed up with this level of virtual signaling. Corporate America is in a PR meltdown over the Black Lives Matter movement. So from a PR and marketing perspective, how did corporate America handle it? It's still mixed. It's still mixed. Just last week, we read that some fast food company in Texas and I can't remember, the, it's not one that's on the East Coast, so I don't really remember the name of it uh, off the top of my head, had hired, had fired a clerk because uh, a customer came in and she was wearing a face mask. The, the, the clerk was wearing a face mask that said Black Lives Matter on it. And the clerk, the customer demanded the phone number of top management because she was offended that this person was wearing this face mask. Right here in Massachusetts, we had in Cambridge, there's a lawsuit going right now against Whole Foods because several um, clerks in Cambridge were dismissed for presumably wearing um, Black Lives Matter t-shirts that were not the corporate uniform, whatever that means. I didn't even know that um, Whole Foods had corporate uniforms. So it is spotty. But then you get to organization like the Boston Red Sox, who you know I have done a lot of work with. And I have tremendous respect for how bold they have been. It's on the Mass Pike. You know, they took that big billboard and they said, this is what 
our values are. This is what we believe in. Opening day, it was all about focusing on the importance of um, equality and and having organizations that are committed to not only the words but the action, and that was evident there. So it 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 arranges on the spectrum, and some will get away with doing very little, but most will need to do more because from a structural perspective, society is changing and in terms of the demographics. And the demographics will help to dictate how people respond to the community needs. I also think when you mentioned the Red Sox, um, I think sports in general can also have an impact on society. It's something we hang on to as an example. And people forget their companies too, their their corporate uh, versus just on the field or on a court. So there, there's a lot of business behind it. And, right. but it, it, and it starts there and it moves forward to the front end, which is the athletes we see. So they can have a big impact because kids see it too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I heard Tom Warner on an interview say that he got some flack from people about the Black Lives Matter um, movement uh, being so visible in their opening um, opening event and also that they'd taken a stand. But he said, you know, if you can't take a stand with the things that you believe in, then what value are you? And I respect that. In our final moments, I would like to circle back to your nonprofit work because I don't think that's focused on enough uh, in general. And I've done my own fair share of boards and all. I'd love to know how you got started in nonprofits and then, and then also, you know, how would you advise people Mm -hmm. to get involved? Uh, Is there such important uh, entities for us? Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah. I started in nonprofit work fresh out of graduate school. And actually when I was on my first job, I recognized, um, I, perhaps it was in a classroom discussion or something, I'm not quite sure, I know the exact genesis, but I recognize that many of us have the opportunity that most won't have. And with those opportunities come responsibility. And therefore, I started actually with the YWCA, and I served on the board of the Boston YWCA for many years. I chaired the board, and then I was invited to be on the national board of the YWCA, and I served on that board for about 12 years. And this is a board that has always been focused on the elimination of racism and the empowerment of women. As, long, as far back as we can remember, Dorothy Height, who was one of the leaders at the YWCA, marched with Martin Luther King Jr. and others. Um, so uh, my, my interest in service was kindled and supported by them. Uh, once you start, you find that there are areas of... Um, passion for your for you personally in my case um it was more about service to for women 
any organization that provided the opportunity for women was of importance to me. I got invited to serve on Reach Against Domestic Violence by a friend who had served on their board for a long time. And even though I didn't know much about domestic violence at the time, the fact that I knew that they were servicing families and not just women, because um, certainly men uh, suffer from domestic violence as well, but primarily the population that suffers are women. So I joined REACH and I do believe that they do um, the highest quality work uh, in trying to keep these uh, families safe and provide them with the support that they need to be able to become independent without fear. Uh, I rotated off the board a while ago now because I served for eight years, but I also am still very supportive of all the work that they do. I'm right now in conversations with um, a board for a possible board um, seat on with an organization that provides um, food. We are in a society that has suffers severe food insecurity, and there's an organization that is addressing that food insecurity in a very effective, respectful, um, dignified way, and they've asked me to consider being a board member there. So it depends on your passion and your interest. It is. It's time, but it's, if you, if you love it, you're passionate, you'll do it. There's some, the food insecurity is a big one too. Uh, there's a lot of work, even from high school students doing some community work, which it grows very quickly. Mm -hmm. And for a while, the food banks were not accepting food, only checks. So, but now I think they're back to accepting food. It's safe and we can hopefully help our right. help people who uh, can't provide for themselves and help them get back on their feet. It's wonderful. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's the one thing about this whole um, campuses returning, to, to physically returning, some of them. Uh, we don't realize how many students on very big campuses rely on the schools at the community level too, I know in towns around me, we're still uh, having box lunches at schools uh, around the town, so that kids would have meals, at least a couple meals a day. It's a, uh, it's a silent. It's, it's it's almost invisible to some, and it's it's wonderful that you're um, taking a stand and helping this uh, become a little more visible to people. Um, any last words, Sandra? This was such a delight to speak with you. Oh, thank you. We could talk for hours and hours, uh, but that was some great conversation and some great tips you had for marketers, for people who want to go into nonprofit and, and your work in academia, corporate and nonprofit. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It was an honor to be asked. Our thanks to Sandra King for joining us here on the Look Left at Marketing podcast. For more information on everything that she and her organization are up to, please check out the website www.stkingassociates.com. We hope you'll subscribe to the Look Left at Marketing podcast series. You can find us on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you happen to get your podcasts. And of course, we also welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Speaking of which, next up, Brian Scanlon sits down with marketing guru Lori Cohen for an in-depth discussion of the importance and intricacies 
of branding and enterprise technology in particular for SaaS companies. Thanks again for joining us on this edition of the Look Left at Marketing podcast. Till next time, be well.